Chapter Twenty Five of Herb of Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Herb of Grace by Rosa Nuchette Carey. Chapter Twenty Five. It has gone very deep. When you depart from me, sorrow abides and happiness takes his leave. Shakespeare. Fulfill the perfection of long-suffering. Be thou patient. Teaching of Buddha. All his life long, Malcolm never spoke of the hours that followed that fateful interview down by the pool, when he was as one who had just received his baptism of fire, when he was scorched through and through with that new and terrible agony. He will take it hardly, Dinah had said to herself. His nature is intense, and he will suffer more than most men. And she was right. Malcolm did suffer cruelly. He had spoken his parting words to Elizabeth with outward calmness, though his lips were blanched and his features drawn with pain, for he was a gentleman, and noblesse oblige, and why should he make her suffer when she had done him no wrong? I am not the only man who has been denied his heart's desire, he had said to her, in a dull, lifeless voice, and in this he was certainly right. All are not winners in the race, many fail to attain their goal, and retire baffled and disheartened from the contest. But few suffer as Malcolm Herrick did, and though he did not curse the day he was born, as Job did, the whole plan and purpose of his life seemed frustrated, and the future a hopeless blank. And the fault was his own. Even in his most despairing moments he never ceased to tell himself that she had never encouraged him, never held out her woman's sceptre for him to touch, and even when she had been most sweet and winsome she had not abridged the distance between them, nor, in her noble sincerity and friendship, attempted to draw him closer. No, it was he who had been a blind fool, and he must pay the penalty of his madness. The gates of his earthly paradise had closed behind him forever. He could hear them clanging in the distance, and the golden bells of his city of dreams were chiming, Nevermore, oh, nevermore. His city of dreams, what a good name, thought he and through the long summer days he had dwelt there like a king and now the gates had closed and the golden pinnacles were no longer visible and the breath of the roses and the fragrance of the spices of araby the blessed would no longer steep his senses in sweetness never more oh never more would those blissful dreams be his malcolm never quite recollected what he did with himself that evening the idea of going back to the crow's nest in his present state of mind was simply intolerable. How could he have joined in the simple meal and listened to Goliath's talk? No, it would be better to have a good long walk and look things in the face, and if he tired himself so much the better. But Malcolm never retained any clear recollection of that walk. He had a vague idea that he passed Earlsfield Station, and presently he found himself on the open moor where he had driven with elizabeth the day when she had so naively confessed her ignorance to him i am rather a desultory sort of person she had said to him and he had offered to make out a list of books for her to read he had done so and she had thanked him very sweetly and had sent for some of the books but he had never seen her read them 
Perhaps Carlian, and at this thought he ground his teeth hard, perhaps Carlian had discouraged her. Horticulture seemed his chief hobby, and he was always talking to her about a new fern house they were making at the woodhouse, and Malcolm's poor books were neglected. He flung himself down on the heather. He would battle it out with himself, he thought, and when he was in a quieter frame of mind he would go home. Home! Pooh! He would never have a home now. It was a glorious evening. A fresh, soft breeze had risen and blew refreshingly in his face, but he never heeded it, for in some moods we take the gifts and graces of nature as a matter of course, and yield her no thanks or acknowledgment for her gentle benison. Even the glowing crimson tints of the sunset clouds could not move him to admiration. A line of browning came involuntarily to his mind. I will not soil thy purple with my dust. But he was thinking of Elizabeth, and not of the sunset. I must battle it out with myself, he repeated. But hours passed, and the moon had risen, and he still lay there, plucking up the heather and flinging it aside in a stupefaction of misery. It was only when the September darkness stole over the moor that he recollected himself and stumbled to his feet. He was almost worn out when he unlatched the little gate at the crow's nest. Amias was smoking as usual in the porch, and Verity was with him. The lamplight from within fell full on Malcolm's face as he approached them. Verity gave a start. "'Oh, how tired you look!' she said in quite a shocked voice. Malcolm gave her a weary smile. "'I have had a long walk,' he returned. "'It was such a lovely evening, so I resolved to miss supper for once.' He tried to speak in a jaunty fashion, but it was a ghastly failure, and he knew it. He was so sick and faint with inanition that he felt as though he could not utter another word. "'I am tired. I think I will go to bed. Good night, you too. and he groped his way to the garden-house. Amias took his pipe from his mouth and looked at his wife inquiringly. "'What's come to Herrick?' he said, in a concerned tone. "'He looks dead beat.' We thought he was dining at the wood-house. At least you said so. Yea, verily, my child, and I believed you. Yes, I know, dear, but we were both wrong, and he has eaten nothing. That is evident. And then she got up quickly. The kitchen fire is still alight, and the kettle will soon boil. I told Martha to leave it. I will make him some coffee, and you shall take it to him. And Amias, you dear old thing, don't talk to him. He is not fit for it to-night.' And so it was that a quarter of an hour later Amias knocked at Malcolm's door and was reluctantly bidden to enter. Malcolm was sitting, still fully dressed, by the open window, and the moonlight made him look still more ghastly. Amias, without a word, lighted the lamp and placed the tray beside him. Verity sends her love and says you must eat your supper, was all he ventured to say. But his large hand rested kindly on Malcolm's shoulder for a moment. Malcolm tried to thank him, but the words would not come. But when his friend had left the room, he suddenly covered his face with his hands and cried like a child. Elizabeth! Elizabeth! But there was no response, only a sleepy bird stirred in the shrubbery. In spite of his great intimacy with the Kestons and his very real friendship, Malcolm did not confide in either of them. He was undemonstrative and self-reliant by nature and as he said himself afterwards, there are some things that a man ought to keep to himself, 
but neither Amius nor Verity expected any such confidence. If Amius seemed puzzled by the change in Malcolm, Verity needed no explanation. She had seen how things were from the first. She had once caught sight of Malcolm's face when Elizabeth Templeton had passed him so closely that her dress brushed against him. She had seen that look in Amius's eyes in the dear old Lang Syne. Verity was a loyal little soul, and she never even hinted her suspicions to her husband. Neither did she attempt to find out what was amiss. When, the next evening, Malcolm told them hurriedly that he would be obliged to return to town earlier than he thought, she interrupted Amius's clumsy exclamations of regret. "'Mr. Herrick has been very good to give us so much of his company,' she said cheerfully. "'Of course we shall miss him, and so will Babs.' And then, in her pretty housewifely way, she set about making arrangements for his comfort, and Malcolm felt inwardly grateful for this unspoken sympathy. He went over to the vicarage to bid Mr. Charrington good-bye. On the way back he met David Carleon. The young curate looked rather nervous and discomposed, but Malcolm was quite calm. "'As I am leaving Staplegrove tomorrow, he said quietly, "'I am glad to have this opportunity of offering my congratulations and bidding you good-bye.' The lie came glibly to his lips. Glad, when he would have gone a dozen miles to avoid his rival, his successful rival. Nevertheless, such hypocrites are the best of men.' The words flowed smoothly from his lips. "'Thanks awfully,' replied David, prodding the dust with his stick. "'Are you going up to the woodhouse now? I think, that is, I am sure the ladies are out.' Which was certainly the fact, as he had just seen them driving in the direction of Earlsfield. "'No, not this afternoon, I think,' replied Malcolm. "'Well, good-bye. I'm a bit pressed for time.' And then the young men shook hands, and David's grip was almost painful." "'Poor beggar,' he muttered to himself as he turned away. But Malcolm could not give expression, if he tried, to those bitter thoughts of his. David Carley and her husband, the husband of Elizabeth Templeton. Why, the very birds knew how to mate more fitly, he thought. He is good and true, but he is not worthy of her. And David, in his sad humility, was saying the same thing of himself. That evening Dinah received a note. Amias Keston left it. My dear Miss Templeton, wrote Malcolm, tomorrow I am leaving Staplegrove, and I know you will understand the reason why I do not call to bid you good-bye, and that you will not think me ungrateful after all the kindness and hospitality I have received from you. Your sister has often told me that you have no secrets from each other, so you will know why it is better for me to return to town. I have been to the vicarage this afternoon and have seen Carleon. With kindest regards to you and your sister, Yours very sincerely and gratefully, Malcolm Herrick. Elizabeth grew a little pale, and bit her lip when Dinah showed her the note. It has gone very deep, she said to herself. David said so, and he was right. It has gone very deep. So Malcolm shook off the dust of Staple Grove, and the gates of his city of dreams clanged behind him. He must dree his weird, he said to himself, as he sat down to his work in the gloomy room in Lincoln's Inn, and in spite of heart-sickness he worked on stolidly and well. The evenings were his worst time, when he went back to the empty house at Shane Walk, 
and sat on the balcony brooding over his troubles until the light faded and an eerie darkness crept over the river i suppose many men have to go through this sort of thing he would say to himself trying to philosophize in his old way but if anyone had seen his face what does our glorious will say men have died from time to time and worms have eaten them but not for love ah but he also says how bitter a thing it is to look into happiness through another man's eyes and sometimes when the silence and solitude oppressed him terribly he would picture to himself the dreary future i shall never marry he would say there is only one woman in the whole world that i want and she will have nothing to do with me and my love and no other woman shall ever be my wife and then he would wonder sadly what life would be like when he was an old bachelor would he be living on here with amias and verity or would he go back to his mother and do his duty to her in her old age but with all his bitter ruminations he never let himself go again but battled manfully with his pain though as the days went on he grew paler and thinner and looked wretchedly ill malcolm knew that his mother and anna were back at queen's gate but it was quite ten days before he saw them he dreaded the ordeal of his mother's searching glances but at last one evening he plucked up his courage and went anna who saw him coming flew down the staircase to meet him she looked younger than ever and quite pretty with the soft pink colour in her cheeks and her fair hair but her smile faded when she saw malcolm's face oh malcolm have you been ill she asked in an alarmed voice no dear not ill only a trifle seedy and out of sorts come let me look at you lady fair and he pinioned her lightly. "'Good child,' he continued approvingly, "'I shall tell the mater you do her credit.' "'Yes, I am quite well and quite rested, "'and, oh, Malcolm, I am so glad to see you again.' Then he smiled at her kindly, and they went upstairs, hand in hand. Mrs. Herrick, hearing their voices, came out on the landing to greet her son. Her manner was more than usually affectionate. "'My dear boy,' she said, "'what an age it is since we saw you. "'It is more than a fortnight since you even wrote. "'When did you come back to town?' "'Malcolm had dreaded this question, "'but he was compelled to answer it truthfully. "'About ten days ago,' he returned coolly. "'He knew his mother never tolerated excuses. Ten days, and you have never been near us.' "'Then her tone changed. "'Have you been ill, Malcolm?' and she regarded him with undisguised anxiety. "'Anna asked me the same question,' he replied impatiently. "'I have only been out of sorts, as I tell her, rather off my feet and that kind of thing.' Then Mrs. Herrick said no more on that subject, but as they sat at dinner the keen grey eyes were often fixed on his face. Malcolm did his part manfully. He talked and questioned Anna about her doings. He would not brook an instant silence.' Anna must tell him this and that about her water-party and the picnic, and those wonderful people who tried to force an acquaintance on them. He would not let her off, though more than once the girl looked wistfully at him. Why did he not tell them about Staple Grove? He had not once mentioned the Woodhouse and the Templetons. Was anything wrong with them? He did not look himself, and she had never before noticed those lines on his forehead. He looked different somehow in these two months. When he went on to the balcony to smoke his cigarette, she followed, and stood silently beside him, until he turned and saw her anxious face. "'Well, Anna Chen, 
one of his pet names for her. What is it, little woman? Then her soft hand smoothed his coat sleeve. Malcolm, dear, I don't like to ask, but I am sure something has gone wrong between you and your friends at the woodhouse. You have not once mentioned their name, and there is such a sad, sad look in your eyes. Malcolm took the girl's slender wrists and held them firmly. Anna, you are my dear little sister, are you not? Oh, yes, in a shrinking voice, for he was evidently waiting for an answer. A faithful little sister who will not misunderstand her brother, even if he doesn't confide in her? Anna, you are right, and something is troubling me, something that can never be set straight in this world, but not even to you can I speak of it. Then she knew, and in her innocent love she would fain have comforted him. I am very sorry, very, very sorry, was all she could find to say. I am sorry, too, he returned gently, and then he kissed her cheek, and Anna stole away sadly to her own room. If she shed tears, they were for him and not for herself. Anna's affection for her adopted brother was perfectly unconscious and selfless. She never indulged in unwholesome introspection. She never asked herself why her heart ached that night, and a sense of loneliness and desolation stole over her. Malcolm was unhappy. That was her one thought. Things had gone wrong with him. Oh, if she could only give him his heart's desire! This wonderful unknown Elizabeth, had she refused him? Was there someone else? Alas, these questions were not to be answered. She must play her part of a faithful little sister, who must ask nothing, refuse nothing. Malcolm's ordeal was not yet over. When he threw away his cigarette and went back to the drawing-room, he found his mother alone. "'I thought Anna was with you,' he said apologetically, "'or I would not have stayed out there so long. I am afraid I must be going now.' "'You have your latch-key,' she returned quietly. "'Sit down a moment. I want to speak to you, Malcolm. You are not yourself this evening. Something has gone wrong.' Again Anna's very words. He was silent. Why had his womankind such sharp eyes? I am a bit flattened out, he acknowledged, but I shall be all right in a day or two. But she passed this by almost contemptuously. Something is troubling you, she continued, and to judge by your looks, it is no light thing. You have grown thinner, Malcolm. Oh, I was always one of the lean kind, he returned lightly, but she seemed almost affronted at the little joke. Does that mean you do not intend to tell me your trouble? And here her eyes grew very wistful. You are my only son, Malcolm. She never called him her only child. Her adopted daughter was too dear to her. Is there anything that I can do to help you? Nothing, nothing. And he kissed her hand gratefully, for her motherly tone touched his heart. Mother dear, forgive me if I cannot speak to you or Anna about this. Not even to poor little Anna? No, not even to her. Mother, please do not misunderstand me, or think me ungrateful, but there are some things of which a man does not find it easy to speak. Then Mrs. Herrick said no more. She must bide her time, and until then she could only pray for him. And up in her pretty room Anna was praying her guileless, innocent prayers, and watering every petition with her tears. How could she? How could she? she cried more than once. How could any woman refuse my dear Malcolm? Can such prayers help? Yea, a thousand times yea. Only he who reads human hearts knows the value of such prayers. When the son, the brother, the lover, has gone into the battle of life, 
when his strength is failing and the philistines are upon him it may be that the pure petition of some loving heart may be as an invisible shield to withstand the darts of the evil one or haply that arrow drawn at a venture which else had pierced between the joints of his armour i said little but i prayed much for you my son mrs herrick once said to malcolm in after years when they understood each other better and he knew that she spoke the truth End of chapter 25